Well, hello everyone and welcome to another episode of the TCLF one-on-one series. Through the one-on-one series, we aim to interact with the best legal professionals from India and around the world. Today, we speak about a theme, a subject matter of law, which is very close to my heart personally. And this is a subject I'm in love with, competition law, or as you may call it, antitrust law. And we couldn't be more honored to have a guest of the statute of Mr. Rahul Rai to join us as a guest for this episode. Uh, Mr. Rahul Rai is an off-counsel at AZBN Partners, helping and assisting the firm in their competition law matters. He's also associated to the chambers of eminent senior counsel, Mr. Gopal Subramaniam. Uh, Sir has been recognized as a leading practitioner in the field of competition law by a number of reputed ranking journals and guides, including the very famous Who's Who Legal. Uh, Having graduated from NUJS Kolkata in 2007, he went on to pursue his master's degree from Stanford University in the USA in 2011, having gained a substantial amount of work experience, as is evident from the time gap between the two degrees. Uh, Sir, it's an absolute honor to host you. Thank you. Thanks, Atan. I'm happy to be here and happy to speak with you all. So, just to set the tone for the conversation, uh, when when you joined the professional, uh, competition law wasn't as popular a field as it is now. We see law students as well as young professionals, you know, trying to venture into this field uh, in, in, in the recent days. So, what was your first encounter with the subject as a professional and what, you know, motivated you or inspired you to pursue a career and build a career out of this? No, I started law school in 2002 and the Competition Act was passed by the Parliament in 2002. In the first year of my law school, uh, this Act was uh, passed by the Parliament and uh, I read about it in newspapers and uh, the law school that I went to, National University of Juridical Sciences, uh, was headed by back then uh, Professor Madhav Menon. Uh, he was a dream seller and he had this knack of identifying areas of law uh, which were new, which were not the traditional areas of law and try and introduce courses in that area at NUJS and he had experimented with this when he uh, headed the National Law School in Bangalore. Uh, So on the very first day, in fact, when we uh, were sitting in the orientation, Mr. Menon uh, talked about multiple new areas of law and his plans to introduce courses in those areas. And two areas uh, immediately piqued my interest. One was antitrust and second one was international trade law. Uh, part of that being that I uh, quite liked economics in my oh. high school and had studied economics uh, in grade 11 and 12. Uh, had harbored this uh, fancy dream of doing econ honors from Delhi University. Uh, didn't make the cutoff. Uh, ended up as a lawyer, uh, but uh, a new area of law with economics as its uh, foundational principle uh, right. got me interested. And when this course was ultimately offered to students at NUJS, uh, right. I took it up. Uh, and uh, I also continued to, while uh, studying at NUJS in each one of my internships, 
uh, I uh, put myself out there in the law firms and in the teams which were uh, doing international trade law and had an inkling that there is a new law on the horizon and uh, that's uh, going to kind of tie into the trade law practice. It doesn't tie into it. I mean, after 10 and, 10 and a half, uh, you know, about 12, 13 years of practice, I realized that some bit of theoretical overlap might be there, but otherwise the practices are quite distinct. Right. Uh, but that's how it all started. It's Professor Menon that I credit uh, for having shown many of us the dreams uh, to try and pursue careers in areas which uh, probably no one in the country had heard of. And uh, today from the graduating batch of 2007, I know of only three people who practice antitrust in this country of 1.2 billion people. Uh, one of them is an ex-colleague from AZD. She's uh, part of the national, not national, the Nestle antitrust group okay. in Switzerland. Uh, one of her yeah. colleagues is at uh, SNR uh, heading their practice out of Bangalore. And I'm with her one. So it's a, uh, all of that probably is, the credit has to go back to Professor Menon for having inspired us to take up this course. That's that's an inspirational thing to hear, sir. The how how students are motivated by a good teacher, and you know that's that's something very inspiring to hear. And if I'm not wrong, you were one of the foundation. You 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 were one of the foundational practitioners of the competition law practice at ELP. If I'm not wrong, uh, so. Uh, that, that's something very good to hear. Part of the team which, uh, which set up the competition practice at ELP. So, uh, yeah. who was my uh, senior colleague back then, Samir Gandhi, and who yeah. continues to head the antitrust practice at AZD. Uh, the two right. of us took the initiative to uh, set up the antitrust practice at ELP. And then subsequently, we set it up at AZD and Partners uh, in oh. 2000. Uh, so, so uh, apart from being associated to AZB as an off council, you are also associated to the chambers of senior council Gopal Subramanian. So, how do you balance the two, given the difference in the kind of work you do for these organizations? Let me answer that by by going back to my motivation for uh, transitioning from the partnership role at AZB to an off council role, and also joining Mr. Subramanian's chambers. Right. Uh, I practiced for close to 12 years uh, by 2019 is when I transitioned to this off-council role and I started working with Mr. Subramanian. And I hadn't done litigation, courtroom litigation. Okay. I had never done. I had been to the Supreme Court for one matter back in 2009, not 2009, right. 2010, when the Competition Act okay. uh, got promulgated. Uh, right. An appeal which went to the Supreme Court of India, and on behalf of CCI, I had the opportunity to brief Mr. Subraman. So, uh, after having done the law firm route uh, and enjoyed it, I quite enjoyed it. The, the opportunities and the learnings within the two law firms that I worked at were tremendous. Uh, but after 10 odd years of law firm life, I realized that. Uh, as a lawyer, I also needed to have greater comfort with the courtroom. Right. Uh, and uh, when that opportunity to work with Mr. Subramanian arose, uh, right. I just couldn't say no to it. It, was, it would have been foolish on my part to let go of that opportunity. And uh, thankfully, AZB created that platform wherein I could continue to work with them as an off-counsel. Uh, 
and Mr. Subramaniam gave me the flexibility that you do what you can do uh, with AZP and you help uh, with the chamber work and, and the, with the litigation briefs at the chamber. So it fits pretty well into my own uh, desire to become a better lawyer. Right. Uh, there is a side of antitrust practice which is litigation. Uh, and once yeah. things move out of the commission, uh, they go to appellate tribunal or they might go to the writ courts. And finally, everything moves to the Supreme Court. Uh, so no matter what the economic underpinnings of antitrust law be, uh, at the end of the day, it is law. At the end of the day, it will get litigated. And that is something that I haven't seen for 10 odd years, apart from uh, doing a couple of uh, matters as a junior in the Supreme Court, briefing senior counsels. Uh, so the idea was to try and get better as an antitrust lawyer by getting better right. as a lawyer in general. Uh, so it's worked right. out that, I mean, given that motivation, I've spent a year and a half uh, with Mr. Subramanian. Uh, right. Of that year and a half, half an year has been uh, kind of lost because uh, courts have not been functioning to the full strength. Uh, right. So far as litigation, active courtroom litigation is concerned. But that has given me again the opportunity to balance the two works pretty well, two work streams pretty well. The the courtroom workload has not been that significant in the last six months. Uh, the antitrust work has been as busy as it has been for the last ten years. So there hasn't been any dip in that. Uh, I'm able to balance because I don't do routine. Uh, antitrust assignments from AZP, I get involved with them on select matters. And therefore the quantum of work is no longer what it used to be on my plate uh, when I was a full-time serving partner with them. That's that's a fascinating thing to hear. So it's basically what, what I can gather from it is that you basically made this switch uh, to upgrade yourself as an antitrust lawyer because you have been there in the filing part and everything. Now you wanted to, you know, be involved in the action, the litigating part, litigate the law in order to get better. So that, that's a, not, that's not, a fascinating. I, would, I wouldn't, I wouldn't phrase it that way, right? I mean, okay. there's a very important part of work that you do as a lawyer while you work right. with a law, and you litigate. It's not that you don't right. litigate. Uh, right. What you don't get to see is the perspective of an arguing counsel while you right. are. Uh, within a law firm setup, unless that law firm itself has uh, advocates who go out and argue right. before the So it is okay. to gain that perspective. Uh, right. Otherwise, you know, the word filing practice is actually the, the most important part of, or it's actually as important as litigating before the courts is, because right. you're creating the groundwork for ultimate advocacy before the judges. Right. So both of them are equally important. Uh, right. I felt that I needed to see the other side of the action up close. Uh, right. That is something that I hadn't seen because uh, I hadn't even interned with a senior counsel during my law school days. Right. I was pretty focused on uh, doing antitrust and international trade work and therefore uh, I kind of exhausted most of my meaningful internships with firms right. with practices in international trade and antitrust. Uh, so it was right. to just learn the other side of the perspective and you need that perspective to be a complete lawyer. I just felt that I was inadequate as a lawyer uh, right. without having the courtroom advocacy side of the practice. Right. Uh, great. Got it, sir. Uh, 
So, you, as I mentioned earlier, you pursued a master's degree in law from the uh, Stanford University, which is undoubtedly one of the most innovative law schools and uh, best law schools around the world. So, did your lectures in, at Stanford help you in your practice in India as far as litigating part is concerned? Look, again, lawyering has two aspects. Right? One right. is how you conduct yourself before the courts or before the regulators. And the right. second one is the understanding of the law. Right. Uh, Stanford has uh, courses which, uh, and of course, it has hundreds of courses that you can choose from. And I think it's not right. just Stanford, but uh, Many of the leading law schools in, in the United States have right. uh, both courses which uh, focus on the theoretical aspects of law as well right. as uh, they are taught in a manner that you also understand the application of law and not just the underlying uh, basic principles or underlying jurisprudence. So that helps. That helps in uh, going back to uh, the starting point on antitrust uh, has right. helped me a lot. Uh, right. The courtroom advocacy part, I did not uh, take up clinic courses. That's where you get exposed to, in an academic institution, the courtroom advocacy aspect of lawyering. Uh, right. I did not take any of those clinical courses. My focus was on uh, studying uh, with as many antitrust and international trade professors as I could, and I did that. Uh, and what it, I've, the benefit to me has been in terms of knowing where the law comes from, what right. is that underlying principle, uh, which is reflected right. in the statute books, uh, right. interpreting the statute in in the manner that appears most intuitive, most obvious may not always lead to the right interpretation. And therefore, right. I think that uh, each one of us as lawyers, uh, whenever that we either have the time or the interest, uh, right. we should go back and read the basic principles, devoid right. of the decisions. We need to go back to that starting point and understand where a law comes from, uh, to be able to interpret where a law should take you to. Right. And I think this becomes particularly important in the field of antitrust law, wherein jurisdictions such as the United States and the European Union have had established jurisprudence and have been dealing with these cases from a very long time, much before India, I should say, uh, in terms of the diversity of the cases that they've had. Uh, so that may have helped you as well at Stanford, knowing the, the right amount of knowledge and the diversity of opinion, basically. Uh, so, so more than... It's the understanding of the basic principles, which in right. antitrust are global. Their right. application may vary. Their, the outcomes from the application of these principles may vary across countries because the economic right. conditions in different countries, the right. state of competition in the markets in different countries is different. Right. Uh, and therefore, uh, again, the universal perspective is a perspective on understanding the basics of the law, which you end right. up applying in India. Uh, right. Is that true for other areas of law? And I think that it's true for constitutional law as much as it is right. true for law. 
So I wouldn't uh, isolate competition law as a very unique area of law where uh, the global perspective is something which is valued more than the global perspective in other areas of law. So you see the uh, Supreme Court discourse in the right to privacy case, the Puttaswamy case. Right. Uh, uh, the arguments were led by Mr. Subramanian uh, right. in that case and many other leading lawyers had very important role to play in that case and a lot of them had brought in uh, the debates from uh, countries like the United States, the European right. Union, uh, the continental part of the Europe, the common law part of the Europe uh, and right. therefore uh, in today's world, in any, in any area of law, uh, right. knowing what's happening elsewhere uh, would right. sharpen you as a lawyer in India. Right. So antitrust is no, no different from other areas of law. I think that all areas of law benefit from uh, the global perspective. That's an interesting thing, sir. Uh, just talking about the obvious, uh, like, Every law today is being asked questions, uh, has, is facing new issues uh, as due to the outbreak of this uh, unfortunate pandemic. Uh, so what can you highlight some of the competition policy responses to the pandemic? How have the regulators responded? See, the Indian antitrust regulator has become a little more generous. Uh, so it does in the last six months, at least in two cartel decisions, right. and and remember that cartels are the worst forms of anti-competitive practices. Right. Uh, uh, in two cartel decisions, the CCI has uh, decided to not levy penalties. Uh, right. Part of that motivation, or the motivation for such a decision, could be that these companies are anyway bleeding. And if I impose penalties to the extent that the statute allows me, uh, then we might as well kill these industries. So that's been a uh, that's been a very practical decision from the commission, given the state of the economy that we are in at the moment. Right. Uh, the CCI also issued guidelines on how to. Uh, and these were not very detailed guidelines, yet they were helpful in sending out this signal to the industry. Uh, but these guidelines were on how to collaborate uh, to try and meet the challenge of this pandemic. So, for example, if a, a Zomato and a Swiggy were to, which are competitors in their own world, uh, but if Zomato and Swiggy were to uh, collaborate by harnessing uh, the efficiencies uh, that could arise because uh, they are sharing the cloud kitchen spaces. Uh, in an ideal world, such a collaboration would be suspect in the competition uh, uh, law. Uh, but to, if this collaboration was to happen to meet the challenge of the pandemic, uh, the commission would look at it uh, a lot more generously. Um, uh, it has indicated so. So these were two pretty. Uh, these are two key highlights that I picked from the Indian regulator. The other regulators outside India have also, on the collaboration aspect, uh, 
either expressly or implicitly indicated that if you collaborate, then we will not necessarily go on a witch hunt and start investigating you for collusion. Uh, obviously, they will do that if they see that the collaboration was a facade for collusion. But a genuine collaboration will not uh, be, uh, be opened up uh, for a possible cartel inquiry. All right. Uh, so, yeah, I, I get that point. Uh, it's basically that as long as you're uh, collaborating for efficiency gains and benefiting the consumers, that's fine. But if you're just playing a facade of collaboration and, you know, in the garb of collaboration, what you're doing is basically anti-competitive, then obviously the regulator will step in. So, so uh, yeah, and talking about some of the other recent issues, uh, ever since the publication of the market study report by the CCI on e-commerce, we have seen a lot of debate and discussion happening over antitrust issues in the e-commerce sector and how how these e-commerce players work and everything. In fact, uh, some of them are facing antitrust investigations from CCI as well. Uh, so, like, what what are these concerns and where do they come from, basically? Look, we must acknowledge that e-commerce has disrupted the status quo which was going on for uh, centuries. Uh, the concept of a corner uh, Kirana store has been there in India for ages. Uh, in my own view, these corner Kirana stores were mini monopolies. Uh, because you will see you walk out of your home and if there is a Kirana store next to your home, quite likely that it's the only one around there. And therefore, when you step out to buy something from them, unless he knows you or she knows you, uh, they will not be generous in reducing the price further below from the maximum retail price in India. Right. So there was a significant margin play with these local brick and mortar Kirana stores. Now, obviously, they are part of our social fabric. So uh, a lot of us as consumers, if we see these Kirana, Kirana stores going out of uh, business will feel a little bad. Uh, but these local micro monopolies have been challenged by the e-commerce and have been broken up by the e-commerce. Now, there are hundreds and thousands of these local micro monopolies. Uh, obviously, they are feeling the pinch of uh, a large disruption which has happened. And it's not like a decadal disruption. It's a it's a disruption which has changed things which were assumed to be the regular course norm for hundreds of years. So it is, uh, you know, we are in the process of that churn and the churning process will lead to some pain points. Uh, some people will be happy. Some people will not be happy. Uh, so I'm not sweeping aside the potential antitrust concerns. But I'm, uh, what we need to understand is that a lot of noise that we hear against the yeah. e-commerce companies comes from a challenge to centuries-old system of uh, micro-monopolies who we were very accustomed to dealing with. Uh, if a, if a Matchbox is sold to you at one rupee a piece because one rupee is printed on it as a maximum retail price. 
right. as a customer we don't even question it but it could right. well be that you could get a 10 paisa discount on it if you were to try and negotiate it with the local kirana store but they don't leave you with any avenue for that discussion or negotiation and right. that is being charged so it's a good overall right. i think it's a good thing now the question is that in this process how do we ensure that uh, they are not being booted out by adoption of unfair means or anti-competitive right. means and that's right. where there might be some merit in the concerns uh, right. are those concerns valid with respect to company a or company b or company c i will not comment right. on that yeah. uh, but one of the concerns which has been most prominent uh, and which i think is pretty much misplaced is a concern of predatory pricing right that concern is misplaced because in india uh, the e-commerce companies the foreign e-commerce companies particularly uh, are only marketplaces they aren't uh, online retailers so to say and therefore when you try and buy a product from amazon uh, the price is set by the seller who uses Amazon's platform as a marketplace. Let's go back to uh, the potential antitrust concerns, uh, which are being talked about in the context of e-commerce. Uh, one of them is predatory pricing, uh, which appears to be the, the leading concern uh, voiced against e-commerce operators uh, that in most cases appears to be a misplaced concern because in India uh, most e-commerce operators operate as marketplaces and while they may have some role to play in the price at which uh, the sellers using their platforms the product to end customers like me and you uh, the price is ultimately determined by these sellers using uh, an e-commerce platform as the marketplace. Predatory uh, pricing in statute books has a very important uh, and necessary constituent element. And I'm leaving aside this whole argument on whether the prices are low or not, whether they are low. Uh, or whether they are so low that they go below average variable cost or any other benchmark of cost, let's park that aside. Uh, there is an equally important necessary constituent uh, uh, of predatory pricing, which is the intent to kill competition. And this is one aspect of antitrust law where uh, there must be an intent, a proven intent. And that proven intent must come from uh, documentary evidence or any other circumstantial evidence. And in economics, if Micromax, for example, as a matter of uh, principle, decides to sell all its handsets uh, through the online channel uh, at prices which are 30% less than uh, a handset which is being sold by another smartphone manufacturer is that predatory is is micromax trying to kill that other competitor in the market uh, answer is no uh, and therefore uh, when people throw predatory pricing allegation on e-commerce uh, platforms uh, 
they need to again go back to the basic principles, understand what predatory pricing is, what the constituent elements are, and then build those arguments up. Uh, there are other concerns which are being talked about uh, in the context of larger e-commerce operators, which is that uh, they also have the potential to engage in uh, self-preferencing. Uh, while in India they can't necessarily or they, they don't necessarily have the ability to sell their own products because they only operate as a marketplace, uh, they are giving preference to the products of their preferred sellers as opposed to smaller sellers. Uh, uh, is that a kind of discriminatory practice uh, appears to be on the face of it, a fair concern. It must be examined by the regulator. Uh, in examining this, uh, should there be a per se approach or should you really look at the end economic impact on the competitive conditions in the market as a whole? Uh, there has been some debate there in the context of e-commerce particularly ever since uh, Lena Khan wrote that paper, Amazon's Antitrust right. And that, that paper is a, is a lovely read, but it's, 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 uh, it raises some valid points, but in the context of the United States, uh, it raises some valid points in the context of the United States. And it talks about whether the U S approach to antitrust enforcement must change because the courts have held in a certain way. Does that apply to India immediately? My sense is no. Because Indian law is worded a little differently and therefore we have enough flexibility in our existing rules to examine the, the self-preferencing concern, for example, that I talked about. To examine even a predatory pricing concern. Uh, so these two appear to be the, the forerunners in the uh, potential concerns. And then obviously when someone files a case, they try, they try and, and throw everything on the wall and see what sticks. Uh, but there's a lot of noise around the potentially anti-competitive actions of e-commerce enterprises. Uh, uh, if we remove the noise, then there might be some concerns which merit investigation. I think this this was a much needed conversation and a much needed answer because uh, personally also I believe that, uh, you know, uh, you read many blogs, uh, uh, like any given day you open up a blog on competition commercial laws or any or any journal there are a lot of articles a lot of papers about these concerns and how they're valid and everything but this is a very very different perspective and a very i should say a very novel perspective to the issue that we must look at the broader picture and be open to the idea of these concerns not being valid at some point so i think this was a much needed conversation uh, Talking about uh, another issue, uh, just to briefly touch upon it, there have been also some jurisdictional challenges to the CCI in the recent past. For example, the recent Monsanto case, wherein uh, the Delhi High Court basically upheld the jurisdiction of CCI to deal with patent licensing matters if they directly pertain to some antitrust concerns. So, like, why why do we see that frequent frequently these uh, regulators fight with each other regarding jurisdiction? Where, where does the overlap come? Look, I have very strong views on this, which I have held for quite some time. Uh, and we are, uh, I'm involved in a couple of cases where we are arguing that point. 
in the obviously the cci is the the uh, must be the arbiter of antitrust or competition related issues but when the initiation of an antitrust concern or when the origin of an antitrust concern rests upon a foundational question for example in the context of uh, monsanto's case which is that is there a valid intellectual property right which is being used or allegedly abused to charge very high trade fees right so charge of very high trade fees is the antitrust allegation that these high fees are unfair right but this allegation stems from the foundational question of whether monsanto has a valid intellectual property right right now the validity of that intellectual property right is something that the cci cannot determine yes and till the time that validity is determined one way or the other the subsequent antitrust allegation cannot be examined the delhi high court not just in the case of monsanto but also in an earlier round of litigation involving ericsson and micromax uh, has uh, held and very categorically held that uh, the commission has jurisdiction but i think that the questions the question of law was not framed uh, in the right manner in these litigations uh, right. uh, the question of law is this central point that when an antitrust claim arises from a certain set of facts right. and the validity of those facts can be ascertained only by a separate regulator or a separate court then should right. the antitrust regulator wait its turn that's right. the simple point and bombay high court in a telecom related case right. has said so what bombay high court said is that uh, this is the case involving reliance jio vodafone right. idea and airtel uh, where reliance had complained to the cci that uh, these incumbent operators were colluding by not offering sufficient points of interconnection to calls originating on the reliance network right it was an allegation of collusion collusion right but this allegation of collusion started from or originated from the inability of the incumbent telecom operators to technically provide sufficient points of interconnection now the authority which has the jurisdiction which has the technical expertise to decide whether these incumbents were indeed technically not able to provide those points of interconnection or were they colluding with each other right or sorry not were they colluding with each other but were they not doing so for some other reason other than technical lack of capacity now the first question was to be decided by the trai it had the exclusive yeah. domain and the bombay high court rightly says that yes you have the exclusive domain and in a part of the order which is not read by most people it also says that once you have completed your fact finding mission the cci may very well look at it 
So let one regulator decide the facts. And if those facts indicate that there could be the basis for an anti-competitive practice, then let CCI step in. Uh, this question has been not framed appropriately before the, the Delhi High Court. And my hope is that uh, we will be able to uh, uh, settle this question in, in a manner that uh, the repeated occasion for these conflicts on jurisdictional issues don't arise. Okay. I tell um, you where they arise from. Just like let's okay. pause for two minutes for the benefit of, of the audience here. You okay. see, we have adopted a lot of things from US and Europe uh, in terms of uh, antitrust principles and also the hierarchy of the courts. Uh, okay. But this issue of IP and antitrust uh, first flared up in the US uh, right. economic setup uh, and the judicial setup. In the United States, the antitrust regulators, both the Federal Trade Commission and the Department of Justice, right. uh, they bring charges before the regular courts in the United States. They don't themselves also decide on whether there is an anti-competitive practice or not. So in the US, when in the initial days, when the IP and antitrust debate arose, uh, it arose from an, a pure play IP infringement suit. So when, when a patent holder goes to a court and says that person A is infringing on the patent, the first rebuttal response is that you don't have that patent. Right. So your patent itself is invalid. Right. And the second response is that you by filing this infringement suit are abusing your position of dominance because this suit is a frivolous suit. Right. It is a false and vexatious litigation that you are mounting on me to increase my cost of doing business. So right. the origination is an IP infringement suit. The counter to that, the counter blast is that you don't have a valid IP. And second, this suit itself is false and vexatious. Right. Now, all of these issues are being decided by one court. So how does the court frame the question of law? The court says that this is an IP dispute which has an antitrust element and that antitrust element has an IP element once again. So in, in the US, some commentators have, have classified this as Turk, Duck, Hen. It's a, a turkey with a duck inside it with a hen inside the duck. So this question needs to be framed appropriately before the Indian writ courts. Uh, and if the question of a validity of an intellectual property right cannot be determined by the CCI. It is not the regulator. In India, validity of intellectual property rights will be determined by civil courts. Right. So the CCI's jurisdiction should never be ousted, ousted but right. it must wait its turn. Right. I think this is, uh, this is the collaboration and consultation based approach that we're talking about of the Bombay High Court in the Airtel case. 
and you you were quite right in saying that a lot of people ignore that approach and just say that okay this is what the code actually holds but actually the code also made a very important point about the collaboration and cci waiting its turn so that that's let me give you very another example and let me give you right. another another example where the cci has taken a step back okay in the context of national stock exchange there was a, a an allegation involving some uh, illegal practices which now has infamously come to be known as the co-location case right. uh, where certain brokers were uh, given terminals on the nsc infrastructure and apparently they were given preferential access to the nsc systems right. uh, so allegation before the antitrust regulator was that this preferential access uh, is uh, leading to denial of market access for people who don't have this access a fair antitrust allegation right. but the underlying fact of whether parties were located on the same premises whether they were given a preferential access all of this is regulated by the sebi and right. sebi had to act as a fact finding regulator so when the cci sat with this question this allegation it very rightly sent the matter back and said that this is sebi's jurisdiction right. now let's assume that sebi comes out with its finding and says that yes this was co-location which was improper there was preferential access given could that preferential access have led to denial of market access possibly and therefore should the cci take the sebi's determined fact as the starting point and start an investigation it could and there's nothing right. wrong in that wait your turn is what i'm saying right. Uh, that that's that's a fairly relevant and interesting point, sir. Uh, just moving to the last set of questions, or the last question I should say I have, is relating to another very popular topic uh, these days, which is the latest round of investments in the geo platform by Facebook, and uh, you know the absolute tune of these investments. Uh, like one round was approximately forty three point forty three thousand five hundred crores. For a 9.98% stake in the geo platforms. So, like, uh, do you think that the merger thresholds in India should, you know, be reformed in some manner so that they can, you know, adopt a network-based approach or an effects-based approach rather than their existing or the present status quo? See, a couple of things. A lot of, at least, Facebook's investment in geo was notified to the CCI. Right. and approved by the CCI. Right. The other private equity investors which acquired less than 1% stake, uh, they right. probably need not have notified and I think they have not notified their acquisitions because they benefited from a particular exemption. Those right. investments were made in the ordinary course of business or for investment purposes right. alone and they need not be notified to the commission. Uh, so let's leave this geo issue aside. Right. And if I were to rephrase your question, then is there the question is that is there a need right. uh, to look at the merger control related jurisdictional thresholds, which are linked to the right. asset and turnover of the parties to the transaction, right. especially in the context of tech based industries. Right. Uh, this is again a question which is not unique to India. It is being right. raised and debated elsewhere. Right. Uh, my personal view is that there is no place for such a debate in India as yet. We are debating 
on an issue which will take us in the wrong direction. Now, why is that? You see, the the 1990s was the best decade in India to move people away from uh, poverty to lower middle class and lower middle class to upper middle class. Why? Because it was the IT revolution decade. Right. And in the last 10 years, we have entered the phase of that uh, gig economy decade where multiple new startups are coming up. Right. And these are it is these startups where the concern on the merger thresholds being too high comes into picture and that uh, 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 and that the CCI probably thinks that it is uh, losing out on the opportunity to examine certain deals. But we need to understand the startup economy first before we answer this question and, and understand that in the context of India. What have these startups done? They have created millions of jobs. Look at Zomato. It's one of the uh, between Zomato, Swiggy, and Uber and Ola, uh, right. we have created opportunities for uh, thousands and thousands of people to be meaningfully engaged. Right. Uh, I'm not saying that the engagement, that's the only type of job that as a country we should rest with. But that's a good starting point. Right. Uh, for this system, there's no doubt in my mind that we need to create hundreds of Swiggies and Zomatos and Olas and Ubers in this country. Okay. And to do that, what do we need? We need capital. Okay. We don't have capital in this country. So we need foreign capital. We need money. Money goes where there is scope to make more money. Okay. And therefore your initial angel funding and VC funding is very important. Now, angel investors and venture capital investors, they invest with this idea that they will make uh, multiples of their initial investment on certain investments within a defined period of time. And therefore, they walk into a company with the idea of exiting at some point in time. And that exit is critical. So if a venture capital investor does not know when and how it will exit, it will be very reluctant to touch that company. Right. Now, if we empower the commission to look at a transaction where an angel investor stepped in in the early days of the life cycle of the startup, then a VC stepped in three or four years later, and the VC wants to exit seven years later post its investment. Uh, right. In today's time, it could exit. Why? Because uh, the nature of these companies is such that their turnover will be less than the relevant thresholds. Uh, and therefore, when a venture capital wants to sell out to a strategic buyer, it can, at the snap of its finger, sell out and exit. It's very easy to exit. But tomorrow, if the regulator has to step in, that exit can get delayed by 30 days. It can get delayed theoretically by 210 days. That's what the Indian law allows. Now, a 210 day delay is almost a a little more than it's it's a seven month delay. Right. Uh, so basically, your capital is parked somewhere for seven more months, right. and you are constrained in that exit strategy. That's not good. Why? Because go back. Right. We don't have capital. We need capital. Right. There's no doubt. Right. Capital will come where there is potential for more money to be made in as quick time as possible and in as painlessly as possible. Right. 
we are competing for the capital as a country with other countries. So we are competing with Vietnam, we are competing with Singapore, we are competing with many other countries. And therefore, if we create another roadblock, that, that venture capital fund sitting out of Silicon Valley might as well go to Vietnam, which they have done by the way. So we need to look at this debate in the context, in a very selfish context, in the context of India. And if we look at it in the context of India, then I think uh, that fear that something will slip away from your hands will go away because that fear will be far outweighed by this larger gain. And this is the only thing that will take India out of the morass that we are in. Create more and more entrepreneurs that will happen if we embrace foreign capital, if we give them the ability to exit as soon as possible, as swiftly and as painlessly as possible. And therefore, there's no scope for one more round of approval. That's not needed at all. I think this is again a very, very novel point of looking at uh, the combination clearance from an ease of doing business, I should say, context. But, and that ease of doing, doing business outweighing the potential fears and sometimes misplaced fears of these combinations. And I think that was again a fairly novel point. Uh, well, with that, sir, thank you so much for joining in this conversation. Thank you. Uh, no, it I'm was not. personally okay. enlightening. And I'm, I'm sure that our viewers will have as much to gain from this conversation. Uh, the clarity with which you have dealt with these issues and the novel perspectives will surely go along with it. Thank you.